Good afternoon, everybody. Amen. Um, there you go. I'm honored to be here this afternoon, and I've just been doing this all day long today. Uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. Um, first of all, first of all, my name is Lawrence Guyton. I'm a uh, student here at AMBS, and uh, just real quickly, I want to thank God for President Sarah and the dean who is here, and to all of my brothers and sisters from AMBS that are here, to all of you. And thank you to our panelists who have come to be with us. I want to thank Apostle Coates, one of my mentors in community service. He accepted my invitation to come, so I'm thankful for him for being here. Pastor Tinsley, God bless you. Brother Gabrielto, God bless you as well. Um, I'm not going to waste any time because I want to hear what these people have to say. We have South Bend, uh, Elkhart, and Goshen right here at this panel. So we have a lot of good things we're going to talk about over the next hour. So Sister Cat or Nikisha, if, as we're doing this thing, if either one of y'all want to signal me for anything like that, just let me know, okay? Okay. Let's have them introduce themselves before we go any further. We'll start with Apostle Coates, and we'll go now. Um, Willie Coates, Jr., and I'm a preacher's kid, so I grew up um, in the home of a pastor, and they told me I was going to become a preacher. And I told them for 35 years, no, I am not. <laughs> but at age 35, due to some circumstances beyond my control, I said yes to that calling, and I pastored for the next 26 or 7 years. Uh, I was telling Pastor Tinsley, I'm glad not to be pastoring anymore for the last six years. That's been a pleasure. I enjoyed pastoring, but it is very limiting, and uh, I always wanted to look beyond and to work beyond. So now I have the opportunity to do that. Uh, I'm a lifetime resident of South Bend, Indiana. Been there for the last 67 years. And um, it's a great city. I'm speaking prophetically now. <laughs> because in reality, it's a greatly challenged city. But we are called to be a great city. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here today um, on this occasion. And to talk about the, the, the awesome questions that have been prepared for us to discuss today. So I'm looking forward to hearing myself what is going to be said, what's going to be asked, what is going to be concluded uh, by the time we leave this place this afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm Jennifer Tinsley, and I'm the pastor of St. James African Methodist Episcopal Church here in Elkhart. Nakisha uh, <laughs> is also one of my members. <laughs> Amen. Um, I am proud to be AME. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the African Methodist Episcopal Church is the oldest historically black um, denomination. We were founded in 1787, so around the same time that the United States was struggling to be free, so were we. And we are the only denomination that was founded uh, in terms of out of a struggle for liberation. Uh, the founders of our denomination walked out of a church called St. George's um, Methodist Church in Philadelphia because they weren't allowed to pray. And so they got up off, off their knees and they, uh, Richard Allen, who was one of the founders, said, you, we won't trouble you anymore, and they started their own church, which initially started out as a movement. I can trace my roots in the AME church to slavery. My grandmother was a deaconess in the AME church, which is the same uh, office that Rosa Parks held in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So we are a denomination, and I'm a person whose roots are deeply uh, rooted in the civil rights movement. Of course, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, so it is still a part of who I am today. 
Good afternoon. <clears throat> My name is Gilberto Perez, Jr. And I, like uh, Apostle Coates, am a preacher's kid. So I grew up in South Texas, uh, Mexican-American, third generation, and have uh, lived in different communities uh, across my uh, 43, 44 years. And uh, I'm glad to be here this afternoon. I wear several hats in community. Uh, one of them is I am a professor, a associate professor of social work at Goshen College, and I've been there for two years now, or a year and a half, working on year two and uh, teach more of the policy courses and uh, practice uh, as well. Another hat that I wear is I'm uh, working with uh, Latinos in this community and other communities, uh, immigrants on issues of integration and working on issues of how they uh, adapt to society uh, through a specific uh, uh, curriculum and focus on mental health promotion. So I'm doing some of that. And then a uh, little bit of time that I have, uh, I still have family yet, but uh, I'm also an uh, interim regional pastor for Indiana-Michigan Mennonite Conference, which uh, I serve the, sort of the Goshen, Middlebury, Bristol area, where I spend a little time. Uh, when I say a little, it's a little, uh, just because the hours are limited. Uh, spend time with pastors thinking about uh, how God is uh, moving in their midst and how they are thinking about uh, moving nearer to people in community. And so it's not, a, it's not a traditional pastorate, but it's really more of, a, of an engaging on a one-on-one -on -one conversation with pastors. I, uh, my wife, Denise Diener, is from uh, Puerto Rico. She grew up in Puerto Rico. And I have three children uh, who are at Goshen Middle School, uh, Goshen High School, and uh, West Goshen Elementary. Denise is a teacher, and so we have lots of books at home. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not sure if they're reading today, uh, but uh, they were at the computer and one was relaxing on the sofa. So it is really good to be here and I'm uh, very pleased uh, to, to be at this campus. I spent a little bit of time at AMBS uh, serving on the AMBS board. And uh, so it's good to see some of the professors that I've worked with on some projects and uh, good to greet all of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's welcome our panelists in this morning. Okay, this is how we're going to do this. Um, we have about three or four questions that we want our panelists to uh, labor with over the next hour, I believe it is, or leave time for question and answers. Okay, all right, so y'all just kill me when we're gonna go a different way. I'm gonna take my time a little bit on the questions so that not only our panelists hear them, but that the audience can hear them as well and they can meditate as the panelists answer them. So panelists, question number one, Describe how you see racism, poverty, and violence affecting the community from your leadership perspective. In other words, how are you seeing these social issues playing out from the position of pastor of an AME church, the social worker with Latino residents, and radio host and community organizer? How do you see racism, poverty, and violence affecting your community from a leadership perspective? Apostle Coates, if you want to. Oh. first you can. Man, I was gone. I was so deep up into that question and trying to think about that that uh, I kind of left here for a moment. Um, my focus has been for the last probably 40 years or so, isn't it? 
yeah, probably the last 40 some years, has been primarily the African American community. Um, I got blessed with dark skin, and I always say it wasn't an accident. God didn't suddenly say, oops, I meant to make you white, but you turned out black. Uh, it was intentional. And uh, in the 60s, I started studying, uh, first of all, Malcolm X, and I was greatly attracted to his story. And uh, in the 60s, for those of you a little bit older, you know that what was going on in this country was so compelling that you could not stay on the sidelines. If you could, if you did, something was really, really radically wrong with you because everybody was involved. In the South was the great civil rights movement led by Dr. King, but in the North and even in the Midwest, there were the riots starting in Watts. 1965, and Newark, New Jersey, 1966, and Detroit, Michigan, 1967, and South Bend, Indiana, 1967. So, so in my formative early adult years, I was very much committed to trying to do something about what was happening to what I called at that time my people. Felt that very strongly. And I exited the church the institutional church at a relatively early age, about age 17, when I went away to school and didn't have to go to church no more. I didn't go no more because I felt like the church was not responding to my felt need, my felt concerns, which was, how do we deal with this? Uh, we were, I hope y'all can tolerate me using this language. We were, as Malcolm used to say, catching hell everywhere. And it was as if the church I was a part of was only concerned about what was going to happen to us after we died and went to heaven. And there were going to be streets of gold and pearl gates and all kind of wonderful stuff. But what about now, here and now? So I said all of that simply to set the stage for my point of departure, as it were, in terms of my concerns about what goes on in this great nation called America and particularly as it affects the lives of African-Americans in this country. Um, what Dr. King and those who followed the Civil Rights Movement and involved themselves in that movement were able to accomplish is wonderful stuff because a lot of laws have been changed that have provided rights for black folks where they didn't exist before, opportunities for black folks where they didn't exist before. The challenge for us nationwide, and certainly in South Bend, and I dare say probably in Elkhart as well, is while we have the rights, now do we have the means, or do we have the ability? The ability and the means speaks about economics. Mm -hmm. And economically, we are not a whole lot better off than we were 40, 50 years ago in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so what I see in South Bend is, as we've grown numerically, I got so accustomed to saying black folk in South Bend were about 10% of the population. Somebody had to tell me. I was on a radio broadcast, and I was saying, you know, we're about 15% of the population. Now. And the brother sent me a little note. He didn't want to embarrass me. And the note said we're about 30%. And I guess I slept through that 15% growth. <laughs> for real, for real. And so we're 30% of the population. Well, we don't look like it. When you look at the number of black business owners, we got a couple of barbecue places and some hairdressers and some barbershops and one or two car dealerships, but really, you know what I'm saying? Um, something is wrong with the picture. 
And in terms of unemployment, if it's 9% overall, we're probably 14, 15% in the African-American community. So great disparity there. And so yes, there's been progress, but it's challenging to be able to measure it, to feel it, to have it, to hold it, you know, in a real kind of way, especially amongst African-Americans. The playing field is not really level. By law it is, but by practice it's not. So a couple years ago, as an example, somebody did some research and discovered that there had been a diversity ordinance written by Eugenia Brayboy, who was a city councilwoman years ago uh, in South Bend, and she wrote a diversity ordinance that was aimed at leveling the playing field for the hiring of African Americans in particular, and for the provision of greater opportunities for African American entrepreneurs to develop businesses. Um, that law that got passed, probably 1978 maybe, was on the books all those years, but nobody had done anything about it. So it was just a law. It was a limp wrist law. It had no power because nobody put any teeth to it. And so a few years back, Pastor Tim Rouse, who had been president of city council, he AME Zion pastor, some of you know him, uh, wrote another ordinance. And so we now have another diversity ordinance uh, on the books. There's a diversity utilization board, and um, that's been on the books and operative now for the last two years. Sad to say, no difference, no change. No change. Um, the percentage of African-American businesses, as little as it has always been, as small as it's always been, uh, African-American hiring, uh, just no change. Uh, and I submit that probably that starts with the mayor. I say where there's a will, we can always find a way. But where there's no will, we can always find a means of excusing why we don't do it. And I don't think our mayor has the will to make a difference. So I feel like part of our job and I speak both as a pastor who pastored for 20-some years and still have a round table of pastors and leaders that gather at a place where I facilitate twice a week. I feel like a huge part of our role is to come outside of the four walls of our church and stop being so happy because Jesus met us Sunday morning and we felt good. We got goosebumps on top of our goosebumps. Amen. But nothing changing in our community and I think we need to start putting some pressure on our wonderful mayor and our wonderful city council. You know, I'm not gonna call him out of his name, but I am gonna call him, and I have been calling him, and I'm trying to encourage other pastors and African-American leaders in particular, but Latino leaders as well, and Pope folks in general. Amen. We can have something to say about this. We ought to have something to say about this. And the Bible says we could be angry and sin not, so we even ought to maybe get a little bit angry about some of this and stop being so complacent and so cooperative with our demise. Uh, I think God looks at his people when he sees things wrong in the earth and says, what are you doing? People call by his name. What are we doing? And so, sad to say, uh, there should be more in response to the question. There should be more going on that speaks about positive growth and development, and hopefully there will be. I, I like talking to headship gifts. I like talking to pastors because pastors 
speak to congregation. And if we can get the pastors to engage more and to challenge themselves more, then I believe they'll pass that on to their congregations and we can indeed begin to see real change take place in our communities. That's my hope. I'm just thinking about some of the things that you were saying, Apostle Colson, just sort of reflecting on my pastorate here in Elkhart, St. James is on the corner of Dr. Martin Luther King Drive. And uh, recently, last year, I was on a committee and we were looking at uh, doing some work in the downtown area. And I was the only African-American person on this ride and on this committee. And as we crossed the tracks over Main Street, people began to talk about the urban feel that was the area that the church sits in. That's cold word for the hood. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I, we sit in the hood, and I'm okay with that. I'm from the hood. I'm from Gary, Indiana. And so I understand some of the struggles. Um, this issue of racism, poverty, and violence, if we look at the biblical witness, uh, we look at the Old Testament, and one of the things that God was always upset with Israel about was that they did not take care of the widows, That's right. the mm -hmm. children, That's right. those who are marginalized. Yeah. And right. I think God is upset with us now because yeah. we have those same issues. We are not taking care of those who are marginalized. Um, as a matter of fact, the church has become a place of segregation. Mm. The church has become a place of division. The church has become a place where we practice racism, mm. where we uphold poverty and violence, mm. where we, I worked with some people, and this was a couple of years ago when they raised the minimum wage, one dollar, okay. <laughs> and people who were uh, more mainline Christians were angry that this was going, they were gonna see more money taken out of their check if they raised uh, the minimum wage. We have people in my community, in my church, who work two and three jobs because $8.25, something like that, does not being able to take, you can't take care of your family. It's not a living wage. I, myself, am so happy that the Affordable Health Care Act was passed because when I left... <laughs> When I became a full-time pastor, I was a social worker uh, before I um, entered into a second vocation, that of ministry. I couldn't get insurance because I had pre-existing conditions. And I remember the day when I was calling all of these places and everybody kept turning me down and I broke into tears and I said, I've paid taxes in this country, I've worked all these years and people don't care if I die. And so we have people who were fighting to keep people in this country from having health care because there is a thought that everybody in this country is on welfare and everybody who's of color, we're just sucking stuff out of the system but we don't give anything back. Um, violence. I don't even know where to begin. Um, when I lived in Gary, I lived in a, uh, Gary, when I grew up in Gary, it was a very segregated community. And so if you cross the highway, 8094, those of you who traveled up and down 8094, if you cross 8094, black people could not go into that community after sundown. You could go there to work, but you could not go there to live. I went to all segregated, wonderful schools, but from elementary school, I went to George Washington Carver Elementary School all the way through high school. I have only went to high school with African-American people. 
Um, and then we begin to see segregation, I mean, uh, uh, desegregation come in and people were able to move into other communities. But as we moved south, we began to see white flight. So what happened is then people began to move out of Gary and they took all of the resources with them. So much so that all of you who go to Maryville to shop, or what they call Tolbert, was once part of Gary. They, legislation was put forth to annex all of that land so that Gary could not have that land. And so they moved and they moved all the resources out of the community. Steel mills began to close. When I lived in Gary as a little girl, we could uh, sleep with our doors unlocked. Nobody would come in. But racism and the use of the laws, because the people who had used their means not to build up the community, but to tear it down. And so now all of the resources are gone for that community. I just understood, though, that recently, praise God, um, there is an initiative for money to now come back into the city to do some rebuilding. But we all believe that what they want to do is just let the community fall apart so that they can get that wonderful asset, which is Lake Michigan. Violence again, but let me go back to the violence piece. I would have to get on the floor at night when I lived in Gary because I would hear gunshots. There would be some times where I lived that the gunshots would be so close to, where, to my home that I would literally have to get on the floor. I came home one night and there was a young man's body in front of my building who had been killed in a, a domestic violence dispute. St. James, we've had a death right down the street. All around us, our young people are dying in the street. This is a hard thing to say, but 800 people came to a rally for people who got killed in Martins. But when young black people die in the street, nobody comes. Now, death is death, and it's a horrible thing, and nobody should die at the hand of violence. But our kids die every day. Sandy Hook happens every day in the hood. Maybe not in the same numbers, but those things happen. And so as I was looking at Dr. King's legacy, and one of the things that I, even this was after the Sandy Hook, and I began to say, what's wrong with our world? What's wrong with the United States? There is something in our collective unconscious um, that is sick, that is broken. And then I found this quote by Dr. King, and he said, he's talking about the young women who were killed in the bombing in the Birmingham jail. One of my teachers in high school, when I was in elementary school, his niece, her last name was McNair, was killed in that bombing. And I remember my mom taking a black piece of cloth because they asked all of us to wear black armbands to school to uh, support our, uh, he was a librarian, to support him and his family in commemoration of his niece that was killed. And Dr. King did the eulogy, and this is what he said. They say to us, this is he talking as if the girls are talking to those who are in the audience. They say to us, that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, and the philosophy which produced the murders. And I think that's where we are in America right now. What is our philosophy? What are we thinking about? What has happened to us to the point that we are now um, just so broken that um, violence is the predominant theme, um, hatred and bigotry is the predominant theme, and I just feel like I, you know, I just remember the scripture that says, um, "I am the God that healeth thee," and I think that that's what we need is to begin to look at those things.
a visual thinker. So <clears throat> I think about uh, most Americans uh, probably today know very few people who are on the margins. Most Americans have probably never had lunch with someone who is poor. And most Americans perhaps have never shopped at a store where perhaps people of color may shop. Perhaps most Americans um, have never shared their ideas about children and what it means to not have because we are living in a moment in this history in our society that we have the haves and we have more and more and more have-nots. Mm -hmm. And there are more people who are on the bottom who are not. So, so that likelihood that, that people from different classes and races are going to mix in church, the likelihood that, that people uh, are going to go to the same park to play with each other. You know, because, because people that look, as, I, as I've written some things down, as, as people who are on the margins, they shop in different stores, they drive on different streets, they go to different places, they hang out at those different places. And they eat at those different places. Children attend those different schools. And so what we tend to have is that most of us have never really been in foreclosure, have we? How many of us have been in foreclosure? We can admit and raise our hand. We've been in foreclosure. How many of us have had to decide on whether I pay that bill or feed my child? How many of us have decided, have, have feared that I may lose my job if I stay home with my sick child? Mm -hmm. Or I have not had enough money to pay for that parking ticket. That's right. Or if your car breaks down, your life will spin into chaos. One in three people live this kind of struggle. One in three people live this kind of struggle. One hundred million Americans live on the brink of poverty, live on the brink of close to destruction. And 70% of them are women and children. Stark reality. So when I think of my community, when I think of the Goshen community, when I lived here in the 80s, so my father came to Goshen College and spent a year. So I lived in Goshen. I moved around. There were probably, so some of you have heard this story, right? There were 10 of us that lived in the whole community, or 20 of us that went to the high school. It's transformed where, based on the work that I do and, and the work that my sister and my brother do, so I have focused a lot on the Latino population. And so we know that that population has 
grown dramatically in our community. And so before I came to Goshen College, I spent time at a mental health center working as a therapist and uh, learned some, some very startling things. One in 20 of those Latinos that come to our community that are immigrants, they will visit a mental health Currently, or at least it was three years ago, the highest rate uh, or the, the, the group with the highest rate of attempted suicide were Latina girls between the ages of 13 and 17. Surpassed all Caucasian girls, all African American, Asian and Native American. Latina girls in our community are struggling. Latina teenage girls. Social stress, as I worked with individuals in community or worked with a little bit more closely a few years ago, some of the things that were struggled were a lack of work, a deportation threat. If I get in my car and I go, I don't have documentation, but I get deported. I don't have any money. I'm bored. I don't really have anything to do. There aren't activities that are like where I come from, so I get bored. I can't speak English, so I can't talk to a whole lot of people. I can talk to my people, but I can't talk to a whole lot of people. I don't have a driver's license. The state of Indiana a few years ago took away those licenses that allowed people to move a little bit more freely. So therefore, there are people in this community who cannot move about in a free way. Yes. I'm isolated. I may stay home, so therefore I don't participate. And I may have a drug addiction. I may spend time using a lot of alcohol to sort of forget my situations and my depression. I may have anxiety. I may sleep poorly. And I may have poor communication. So as I think of these risk factors, all of these things that I've mentioned, as I think of the Goshen community, these are some of the things that are present. There are people who feel scared. There are people who are not willing to step out. And as we celebrate on today, Martin Luther King, as, as Pastor Coates has said, that we need to stand up and to share. But there are people in our community who feel like they do not have a voice. We'll get later to this in our, in our time where I can share where there are people who are sharing their voice and doing that. But for this particular question, it, it comes to be that we are in a difficult situation. And it becomes difficult to how to work with people who don't have perhaps some of those desires to, to move forward. Thank you. A lot of good things to think about at this time. We're going to go to question number two, and again, I'll say it slowly, even though our panelists have the questions, but this is for the audience as well. There are a lot of in intense debates taking place in our society related to race and class and the importance of economic safety nets. And one of the strong sentiments seems to be that those people should have overcome by now, that the civil rights era is over and we no longer need the safeguards that were in place for poor people and people of color. The question is, what is your take on that position? 
and how does that position contribute to the crisis of racism, violence, and poverty affecting your communities? We'll say it one more time. There are a lot of intense debates taking place in our society related to race and class and the importance of economic safety nets. One of the strong sentiments seems to be that those people should have overcome by now. The civil rights era is over and we no longer need the safeguards that were in place for poor people and people of color. What's your take on that position and how does that position contribute to the crises of racism, violence, and poverty affecting your communities? Any of the three, whichever one wants to start first, can go ahead. I've only got like about 120 seconds worth of response to that. Uh, and my fellows will, will deal with it in specificity, I think. Um, I just want to say generally, the notion when Barack Obama was elected that he was going to somehow work diligently towards a redistribution of wealth, and certainly many conservatives in the country were frightened by that notion. But I think it's a great idea. I think it's an idea whose time has come. There has got to be a redistribution of wealth. Call that socialism if you want to. But, but, the, but the way the card, the deck is stacked now, <clears throat> nothing short of a redistribution of wealth is going to actually make any meaningful difference in this country. I really do, I think, get people who say we ought to have gotten over ourselves, speaking about blacks and other so-called minorities in this country. I get it. I get that. Uh, the sad reality is that's an ignorant statement, though. It means you have not really studied the reality of what's going on. And the sad news is that tomorrow you could be one of those. Oh, God. You with your bachelor's degree or your master's degree, your white skin or your whatever entitlement that you used to have, it slips, slips, slips sliding away right before right. our very eyes right now. So a redistribution of the wealth and the way wealth is handled, even created in this country, has got to take place. Um, I think that what Bill Gates is doing with um, Warren Buffett and some other multi-multi-multi-billionaires as an example is the kind of way forward, I think, in this country if this country is going to be saved from itself. And that is, Bill Gates, and you probably, some of you have seen that, they have a billionaire's club now. And so you have to be at least a billionaire have to have at least a billion dollars of wealth in order to be a part of that club. The other thing that you have to do to be a part of the club is you have to agree to give half of your wealth away in your lifetime. I believe, and another thing that I say to my mayor, I have a young mayor, I like the fact that he's young, and I hope he's got a lot of bright ideas, and there's some nice stuff happening, especially in the Notre Dame area of South Bend, by the way. Uh, <laughs> mainly, only in that area of South Bend. But anyway, I, I like him because he's young and you know you hope because you're young maybe he's teachable. I so far hasn't proven to be so. But, I, but, <laughs> but what I want to say to my mayor is, Mayor, if you're going to make our name for yourself, Go maybe ahead. you have ambitions to become a congressperson or a senator or whatever, here's what you should do. You should address the problem of the poor and the disenfranchised in our city. You ought to get the brightest minds you can possibly get and pay them and assign them to that task because you're not going to become famous by just maintaining status quo. If you want to be famous, solve the problem of the poor in our country, yeah. in our city, yeah. in our region. Address that. I mean, really go after that. 
Get the brightest business minds you can get. Get the brightest students and professors from the University of Notre Dame and the other colleges and universities in our city and put them to that task of really addressing this. Because, you know, the idea of those people, who was it, Romney, who talked about 47% of the folk are not going, you know, they don't do any, they don't pay any taxes anyway, and they don't contribute anything to the economy. That notion is out there. It's rooted in ignorance. It's rooted in ignorance. We have got to begin to look at the reality of what's going on in our country because, yeah, it impacts right now so-called minorities the worst and the hardest, but eventually if we don't get this thing working, it's going to negatively impact the entire nation. Uh, so I think part of our conversation has got to be an inclusive conversation. So it's not just about minorities. Maybe today it seems like it is, but tomorrow, it's you and your son and your daughter. I was just thinking when you were talking about um, tomorrow, it could be your son or your daughter. And that's one of the things that Malcolm X talked about when they began to look at the issue of drug problems in um, the minority communities. And he said, do you think that it will not eventually come to the suburbs that will not eventually come to your communities. And we see yes. that happening yes, now. It's here. Um, we have to look at the whole issue of structural racism and, and the whole issue of uh, why poverty exists and, and the legislative ways that uh, those things are perpetuated and maintained and policies and procedures that continue to maintain racism and classism and poverty. Um, some of you participated at St. James. We viewed a film called The House I Live In. And it really did a wonderful job. People history participated with us in some other area churches. And we came together to look at this film. And one of the things that it talked about is each, um, as people came and immigrated to this country, um, they were segregated. And so they were placed in their communities. And so they didn't have the resources. So when they did not have the resources, what they began to do is they created an underground economy. So if you don't give me access to the wealth, if you don't give me access to those things that are available, then I will create my own underground economy. So whether it's uh, doing prohibition, uh, I sell gin out of a bathtub and speakeasies, whether it is, um, you know, we all watch The Godfather, those kinds of movies and whether now we have young, what I call street entrepreneurs. Yes. Oh, wow. yes. um, we create that economy because you don't give me access to what is viable and what I need to survive. It's a little, I think the issue now is a little even more different because um, you have a culture that spins. We have the whole issue of wealth and it's always in our face what you need to have, the next best, the next best thing. Uh, everything that we do are, and how we think is framed by other people. So we have kids who buy, who want to get Air Jordans or who want to get the, the watches and all of the kinds of things, but those are the kinds of things that sometimes put their lives at risk. But we're told that these are the things that uh, give status and help you to be successful. So I agree that it is whole, uh, definitely um, the the need to redistribute wealth. Uh, we have not overcome because there have been policies and procedures. We can't overcome when they're building prisons right now based on the reading skills yep. of people of color in the third grade. True. 
So they've, they've got to fill these prisons. They've gone into these little communities, they into the middle of a cornfield. They say, look, you don't have a job. You're not selling corn. We're going to put out prison here. We're going to give you a job. And we guarantee you we can fill this prison with people. As long as those kinds of things exist, um, we will not be able to overcome. We have not and will not be able to overcome. As long as we have a mental health system that is underfunded. Mm -hmm. uh, as you talked about the mental health in the Latino community, I remember when I first started working in community mental health is when they were closing state hospitals. And they would send people home. They were coming out of Westville, which is now a correctional facility. They would send them home with their charts. That was before, you know, now everything is, you know, online or whatever. But they had a chart because they had been there for years and an armband. And they did not, there was no reintroduction into the community. There was no way that they were eased back in the community. They were just sent home. And now we have these people roaming the streets. Initially, we had money to provide adequate services. Now services have been cut. Most mental health facilities are struggling. You have people who are mentally ill, cannot function, but we don't have the money to provide adequate care. It's an issue for people who are the marginalized, what I said before, that as the pastor, the people who come to St. James to our pantry, who show up at a church on Sunday, aren't always African-American people. We were right down the street from Faith Mission. So we have people of all races and ages who come in broken and hurting because the there are no safety nets. If you really believe, if people believe that there are safety nets, there are some big holes in the nets. It's true. <laughs> so that's, you know. Uh, one thing that comes to mind in terms of the, what continues to, to be difficult is um, uh, the numbness in our social context. The numbness. We are numb. You'll bear with me, I want to read something here. It's, uh, it's from uh, The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann. These seminarians like this right here, Walter Brueggemann. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> I thought I'd read that. It, it's a, not too long, but it, 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 I think it, 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 for me it hits home to this idea of how we have become a, a numb society that we, we choose to look away. Mm -hmm. Or we choose to not engage in a conversation with someone because we are numb. And so Walter Brueggemann says, which, yeah. Jesus, in his solidarity with the marginal ones, is moved to compassion. Compassion constitu constitutes a radical form of criticism, for it announces that the hurt is to be taken seriously that the hurt is not to be accepted as normal and natural, but is an abnormal and unacceptable condition of humanness. In the arrangement of lawfulness in Jesus' time, as in the ancient empire of Pharaoh, the one unpermitted quality of relation was compassion. The norms of law, or social control, 
are never accommodated to persons, but persons are accommodated to the norms. Otherwise, the norms will collapse, and with them the whole power arrangement. Thus, the compassion of Jesus is to be understood not simply as a personal emotional reaction, but as a public criticism in which he dares to act upon his concern against the entire numbness of his social context. So the reasons that we continue to live many times in poverty and racism and all of these privileges that certain people have is because many times we become very numb. So if you followed some of the posts from the violence that we had the last few days here in this community on the gentleman that was, uh, the young man that was killed at uh, Martin's. So we've read perhaps some of those posts or Facebook posts. The numbness that we have toward everything, the numbness toward this family, the numbness toward well, I'm glad it wasn't me. Boy, I'm, oh, what would it be like if I would have been there? We as a society must, I think, move more towards public criticism. Where we publicly criticize, as a pastor here, our officials, our pastors, our people who are in our communities who perhaps have those positions of power that we be in relationship with them to a sense that we can speak compassion. And compassion then becomes public criticism. It becomes no longer saying, I, it's not me. I'm good. I'm okay. I'm going to get through it. It's all right. I've got my family taken care of. I've got my extended family. You know, my church family's doing okay. I'm good. We're okay. That small group of mine, that's working really well for us. As we move more towards those marginalized people, it's how do we speak critically and in public to those people who hold those positions of power? And that's not easy, sisters, brothers. We need a tribe. We'll go with the this last question. Should we go with the, the charge question? Okay. We're going to ask our panelists to give a charge to our audience. We have community activists here. We have seminary students here, professors here, a whole lot of different types of people in this audience, but we're all here for one cause. So to our panelists, when we are dealing with such painful and oppressive topics, it is easy to lose hope. So to shift to a more positive question, what are the ways you and others you know are working to resist racism, violence, and poverty? And what assets do you see in our communities and in the people in our communities that can help us face and overcome these crushing problems? I can repeat the question one more time. I want to go ahead. Or... <laughs> I, I work mainly, as I said earlier, with um, pastors and leaders. I don't pastor a congregation any longer. 
Um, one of the things that John Perkins is one of my mentors. He probably doesn't know that. His books and his writings and the times that I've been in his presence and heard him speak and share his life journey uh, just has blessed me immensely and challenges me and uh, causes me to search and examine myself. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it is crucial, I think, that we address um, the so-called powers that be, you know, and there's a role for the church, a prophetic role for the church. That's what Dr. King took up, that prophetic role, to be that voice of clout for the oppressed and the needy. I think that's a prophetic role for the church, for the least of these, to care about them and to speak on their behalf when they seem to be voiceless and sometimes faceless, to speak for them. Uh, I think that work needs to be done. But one of the things that John Perkins used to talk about was about being intentional. 11 o'clock Sunday morning, still the most segregated hour in America. 40 plus years after Dr. King is off the scene, it's still true. Uh, white folks still like to be around white folks. Black folks still like to be around black folks. And I presume Latinos want to be around Latinos for the most part. That is much more comfortable. I get it. But the law of intentionality says I'm going to be intentional about going across the street and speaking to somebody who's not from my direct tribe lineage. I'm going to be intentional about that because that's how Christ operates. And that's what he would command me to do today and call upon me to do today. And so, yes, yeah, a little bit scary. I remember my mother, when I was probably about the fifth or sixth grade, she had me enrolled in a, a special group of singers because I always used to like to sing, but I was real shy. And she got me involved. I was the first colored boy in the all-city boys choir. And oh, Lord, how mercy I was so nervous. Man, I, oh, every time I'd go to rehearsal, I felt like I, had, I was about to urinate on myself. I was like, oh, this is horrible. But that experience and many such experiences like that prepared me for some of the work that God's called me to do. Uh, and so I've done a whole lot of work in Goshen with white churches in Goshen and in other surrounding areas, and I've been very intentional about that. We have a round table of pastors and leaders, and I'm real concerned that too many of my black brothers, in particular around that table, are not comfortable with white fellows coming to that table. And I say to them, what I'm preaching to you now and charging you with now, I charge them with every opportunity I get. You know what I'm saying? Because it's so easy for us to feel as blacks. You know, it's our time now, and we got it going on, and we got mega churches, and we on television with our reality selves. Lord Jesus, help us. <laughs> and, and for real, for real, for real. For real. You know what I'm saying? I hear you, preacher. But the oppression that we've known in this nation, in this country, we've got to let that work for our good. We've got to use that to say to white people, you don't want to be an oppressor. Yeah. You don't want to be that, man. That's a jacked up role. Yes. <laughs> you don't want to be in that spot. Yes. You want to share. You want to, you, to whom much is given, much is required. So if, you, if, if the dominant culture is still white, then you got greater responsibility to give more. Right. I mean, that's just the way it works. God says that. You got more, you got to give more. Period. And so as African-Americans begin to get more, because now we got to deal with African-Americans who see their interests as different than the interests of poor black people. That's right. 
because you suddenly have got middle class status and so you can move where you want to. And man, I applaud that. Move wherever you want to. We want to be free in this country. That's what America's about. But don't forget where you came from. All right, you too. Go back to where you started, where you were raised up, and make a difference. Make a difference there. And also, as I said, cross, intentionally cross the line. Don't, if you pastor the church and it's predominantly black, don't be satisfied with that congregational yes, racial yes, makeup. Yes, and don't let your people get satisfied with yes, that. Yes. Begin to ask the question, where the mother folks at? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amen. How come ain't none of them folks here? You hear what I'm saying? And then do something about it. Be intentional. Don't wait for God to get, God got to give me a revelation. Take the revelation from me today. <laughs> Don't be content with that. One, one last thing. All of these issues, all these problems, I think it's we, the body of Christ, who have the answers. Yeah. I think we are the salt of the earth. He said we are, and so I dare to believe. I think we are. I think we are the light of the world. I dare to believe that. But we got to start acting like that. All day, every day. And nothing wrong, like I said, with holding government accountable. And at the end of the day, though, God holds his people accountable. Because we are the ones who have his word, have his Holy Spirit, have his blessing upon us, and the responsibility to do what Jesus did. Made a difference. Everywhere he went, made a difference. That's our role. That's our job. And together, when we pool our collective resources of gifts and talents and abilities and money and experiences, there's no problem too difficult to us for us to solve. We can do it and give God the glory. Amen. Amen. Um, in Dr. King's book, Stride Toward Freedom, there were six principles that he talked about out in terms of nonviolence. But one of the things, number one, that I think sort of uh, uh, could be like a point of trajectory for us is nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It is a positive force confronting the forces of injustice and utilizes the righteous indignation and the spiritual, emotional, and intellectual capabilities of people as the vital force for change and reconciliation. You gotta have courage. We always want to, uh, we talk about Jesus and we talk about um, his dying on the cross. He died on the cross because he spoke truth to power. Mm. Now, yes, he, we, you know, I believe as a Christian, he, he did that on purpose. He was intentional. But as he confronted Rome, as he confronted the other people who were part of the establishment, they didn't like what he had to say. And it was a power issue. And people get uncomfortable when you begin to confront those realities. And it takes courage. And we don't always have courage. Um, and so I would say as we um, end today, we have to be courageous. It is, Dr. King was courageous. He knew that his life was on the line. His, not only his life, his wife's life was on his children's life. You know, we live and we want to do, but we really don't understand the cost. We talk about the cost of discipleship. He said, take up your cross and follow me. So it's not always easy. Um, I remember when um, there was the, the earthquake in Haiti, 
and the newspaper interviewed me and they asked me a question uh, about, that's when Pat Robertson said something really crazy, which he always does. Um, <laughs> but I, I made a comment. That was the first time in my life as a pastor I got a letter that was hateful. It was a little scary because what it said to me was um, basically you have no right to be a female in ministry and you need to go and sit in the back of the church as Paul told you to. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> which reminded me of one issue we did not touch on, and that is an important issue as we look at this issue of, of Dr. King and his is violence against women. Right. It is an issue right. that has just continue to grow in this country and in the world. And it's an issue that even in the church, women suffer violence yep. because we are seen as those who have not been called to preach the gospel when it was yep. a woman who was the first person who went from the tomb and said, he's alive. <laughs> I want to say that one of the things that has really blessed me in this community is that when I have put out the call, there have been my brothers and sisters who are Caucasian or Latino who have come. When we uh, have, and when they have said we need help, I've been there. And so I feel that there is in Elkhart a nucleus of people who want to see the beloved community. Amen. They want to see that dream realized. And we've come together and we continue to come together. It's not going to be easy because racism is not just a one-sided thing. You know, as black people, wow. we can be racist. Oh, wow. That's right. Um, and so, as, as someone said, uh, one of the other people on the panel, we want to stay in our own little niches, but it takes courage to go beyond. And so I just want to see how many of us, as we leave this place, will be water walkers that we will step out of the boat yeah. and we won't look because as we walk out there the wind and the waves are going to come and the opposition is going to come from so many different places but I think if we keep as Dr. King said our eye on the prize as we keep focusing on all those things that we as Christians are the foundation of what we believe uh, then we can bring that resurrected life and that redemption that I think Christ calls us to do in this world. I need not say more. <laughs> but I will say this. I am, I am hopeful. I am excited. There are people in this community who are doing amazing things. There are, let me repeat that again. There are amazing people in this community doing amazing things. We just witnessed a number of people stand up, receive an award for their commitment, their dedication. I get the opportunity to work with students uh, and organizations in this community, so I know what different organizations are doing. And not because they're present or because they're here or whatever, but groups such as uh, Soup of Success, uh, Church Community Services, amazing work in terms of empowering women uh, in that particular realm. The new program that they just launched a couple of weeks ago, Men Alive, uh, which I'll be with them on Thursday, the sense of uh, how we can uh, help men to think about uh, turning challenges into opportunities, helping them move forward. 
I think of a new group that formed here a few months ago. It's called Mil Mariposas Monarca, or uh, 1,000 Butterfly, or Monarch, Monarch Butterflies. Immigrant women who have come from far away, who are here saying, we are present. We are excited about being here. We want to serve. We want to help. We want to be engaged with different groups of people. I think of Oaklawn. Oaklawn, a number of years ago, had perhaps maybe one bilingual staff person. Now they actually have a Spanish services team. They have about seven or eight people who are either Latino or bilingual on staff that are welcoming people into mental health services, are providing crisis intervention, are engaging in those types of conversation. There are business leaders in Goshen who are coming together to say, you know, what are the benefits of being a part of the chamber? Why, why do we have to go be a part of that chamber? Speak to us, tell us, show us. People coming together for conversation on Saturdays to think about, how do we address politicians um, and, and asking them, we would like a driver's license in this state. A group of people who have recently begun to meet to talk about, how do we educate parents now that their children have deferred action status? How do we educate them? How do we move people from their spot to move to that neighborhood association and be a part of that neighborhood association? That gives me hope. That's exciting. Children are interacting. Cesar Chavez, and I'll read a quote of his here. Cesar Chavez said at uh, the point of the Chicano movement, uh, he was addressing a group of people, and he said, what do we want the church to do? We ask for its presence with us, beside as Christ among us. We ask the church to sacrifice with the people for social change, for justice and for love of brother and sister. We don't ask for words. We ask for deeds. We don't ask for paternalism. We ask for servanthood. And I think as the hopeful thing for me is I, I see more people in this community serving. I see more people in the position and the posture of opening themselves up. So I would say an end that for me and my part is, our part is not to shoulder the whole burden of racism, of poverty, of violence. Our part is simply to consent, to learn how to love the one in power. Consent to learn how to love the person who is estranged. Consent to love the person who feels alone. We must let ourselves ask that question of, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Have I done the right thing by helping people? Have I learned enough stories of people? Have I heard enough stories of people? Have I gotten involved enough? 
Have I stepped into an uncomfortable situation? And am I being a voice for that person who does not have a voice? That is my charge. That is my call. That is God's call to us today.